Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Dr. Victor Santiago Panetta. Dr. Panetta is a serial social impact entrepreneur, globally recognized human rights expert, and a leading scholar on inclusive and accessible smart cities. He is a two-time presidential appointee and serves as the president and founder of Panetta Foundation, World Enabled, and a film production company, Windmills and Giants. He is also an adjunct professor at the College of Environmental Sciences. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Panetta. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be back and engaging with the uh, Haas community. Yeah. So uh, what I did mention, Dr. Panetta, is that you're also uh, yeah, your Haas undergrad class of 2002. 21 years. That's remarkable. Time does fly. We like to start off these podcasts, you know, with kind of my favorite question, which is, we'd love to hear your origin story. Where were you born? How were you raised? And usually that kind of unravels for us how you're passionate about what you're passionate about today. Well, I, I have a unique story in the sense that I was born in Venezuela, but I was also born into a world that wasn't designed for us. I tried to remember that, you know, I came into living a life that was unique because I stopped walking when I was seven. By the time I was in high school, I needed a machine to help me breathe. So for those listeners that aren't able to see me, you know, I sit in a sophisticated electric wheelchair and I use a machine that helps me breathe. I do look at the world from a unique perspective, which is the perspective of somebody with significant physical limitations, but also somebody that received a lot of support, a lot of encouragement, a lot of opportunities. And those were all just accelerated. You know, by the time I got to Berkeley and and by the time I joined Haas, the origin story is really about, you know, the profound influence that my family and my experiences at Berkeley had to nurture my intellectual curiosity, as well as my commitment to social impact. When did you come to the U.S.? Did you come with your family or did you come for college? Yeah, I arrived at the age of seven in 1985. My mother was told that I would not be able to be educated, that I would not be able to have a job, I would not be able to form a family. And all of those ended up being not true because it wasn't my physical limitations that constrained me, but the lack of imagination, the lack of public policies, (laughs) the lack of institutions, programs, and laws that allowed somebody like me to thrive. Right. And that all changed when I came to California. My first grade teacher told the students that if anybody would volunteer to push me to the cafeteria, that the kids would get an extra 15 minutes of playtime. Wow. So all the kids raised their hands and they wanted to be my friends. So that type of inclusion doesn't cost anything. Right. It's just about sort of the 
the ability to create a sense of belonging. And I took that as not only a nurturing experience for my own growth, but actually a, a framework for the leadership, a framework for public policy, a framework for innovation, a framework for driving new approaches that could unlock human potential. And that's really what my mission has been and why I incorporated while still an undergrad at Haas, the Victor Panetta Foundation, to really focus on empowering governments and corporations to embrace and unlock human potential. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let's dig into that a little bit. We'll love to hear your life's work <laughs> so far. And uh, I know if there's anyone goes to, to Dr. Panetta's LinkedIn, it's a pretty long, long <laughs> resume. Very impressive, you know, working for the World Economic Forum or working with, I should say, you know, in, in all these different organizations. Can you just share a little bit more about your work? My work is a natural extension of my life journey and my mission. I was always motivated by the need to foster inclusion, but to also do that in a way that was innovative, that was disruptive, that was generative, right? So it's about leading both companies and governments, helping innovators and sort of visionary executives look at the ways that cultures can change. And those cultures, whether you're in a Fortune 500 company or whether you're a mayor managing a city, they're those cultures that embrace diversity and look at actively identifying and eliminating barriers are those companies and organizations that can do more, that can sort of create more purpose, more passion, more impact. So, you know, my background is I studied at Berkeley, both Haas and political economy. Then I master's in regional economic development uh, in the Department of City Planning. And then I realized that economic development, political science, economics, and business were just drivers for economic growth. But I needed to get a better sense of sort of the social fabric that creates the conditions for real quality of life or real substantive freedoms or real ability for humans to have agency for developing human potential beyond just GDP per capita. Mm. And so I did my PhD at UCLA with a focus on social policy formation while recognizing that economic development and social development need to go hand in hand. So I worked with some of the world's leading scholars, including Nobel laureate Amartya Sen, to incorporate his ideas around capability, human capabilities, and how we could create a framework that was really enhancing human agency. Because I had a lived experience with disability, I realized that disability was not a medical condition, it was not a, it wasn't a deficit or a liability, but could be an asset, and it could be a basis for understanding the human condition and unlocking potential if we get the right frameworks in place. 
the ADA, America's with Disabilities Act became a really important civil rights law that changed sort of the face of the day shift. But also, people don't know, stimulated and accelerated digital transformation. When you think about you know, Stephen Hawking's and some of the tools that were developed so that he could synthesize speech, that he could predict the things that he wanted to say, those technologies were the forerunners of these large language models, generative AI. Wow. The idea that you could choose a few words and have a computer predict what you want to say is really what's revolutionized the world right now with generative AI. So the disability community very much has been at the forefront, sort of the vanguard of mainstream tech transformation. So your phones, text-to-speech, or voice recognition features are all part of an ecosystem of technologies that were identified first to benefit people with visual hearing or physical impairments. And so like a Microsoft executive that I had the pleasure of sharing keynote stage with says the assistive technology of today is the mainstream technology of tomorrow. And I think those are all threats around my work is how do I help, you know, from my perspective as a regulator, serving three U.S. administrations on the U.S. Federal Access Board, my work as a researcher and a professor at Berkeley and other universities to help inspire a new generation of of innovators and social change makers, or whether it's the work through my foundation, my philanthropic efforts, how do we invest into the transformative both ideas, technologies, and people that could build the future we need? That is really interesting. Your work sounds so exciting because of not only the uh, obviously the impact it can have, it has had, and and will continue to have. But um, I'm trying to wrap my head around it because I was just recently in, in traveling in Asia and it bothered me so much that how they design the cities are not very friendly for differently abled people. And it was just something I, I noticed because I have you know, young children and we had to stroll with them around and I was just you know, having a hard time even pushing them around. I couldn't imagine anybody else trying to you know, navigate these places. And it really bothered me to the core because coming from the U.S., I feel like, you know, there's still ways to go, but, you know, we're so much better. And so I guess what I'm wondering as I'm hearing you say this is, how do you think we can change the world to catch up to this idea that, you know, helping differently able people is actually beneficial to your society and economy at large? If you look at some of the studies published by Accenture on amplifying accessibility it's not about supporting a small minority of people. It's about looking at the life cycle, the whole range of bodies and, you know, physical, cognitive, sensory experiences. And if you can create product services and workplaces that allow that broad range of human experiences to thrive, you will not only have better product services, happier employees, more dedicated workforce. But you'll actually have systems that unlock human potential. You'll have people that are living with purpose and 
understand that there is a social fabric that creates the conditions for human flourishing. So let me be very specific. You know, when you were in Thailand and you were moving around with your wife and your family, you know, if you were to have your grandmother with you on that trip, or if you were to have several kids with you, you would be experiencing the city with a range of physical barriers. And those barriers would be exhausting. Currently in the world, 25% of people experience barriers in cities because of disability or aging. And those sort of structural challenges are also social challenges. So you continue to have negative attitudes and discriminatory, maybe even just implicit bias against folks that rely on the outside the middle of the bell curve in terms of human functions, physical, sensory, cognitive, normative distribution. But if you can open up your company, your, your workplace, your HR practices, your innovation divisions, to look more broadly, to have a radical inclusion framework into the work that you do, if you have that broader framework, you're actually unlocking capabilities that you didn't even know you had. So Sean, I think the core here is we all have obstacles. We all face challenges. And disability is the only minority that anybody can fall into at any time. So it's in our enlightened self-interest to identify and eliminate these barriers and to recognize the importance of this inclusive design, of this inclusive innovation frameworks. And, you know, my foundation and my, and sort of the companies, the work that I do is supporting companies and communities to unlock that, either by building more inclusive environments, developing training programs, or just providing advisory services that help teams do more and do better and create uh, a sense of belonging for both their staff and their customers and stakeholders. On that note, as I'm listening to you share all this, I wonder if you have some simple wisdom or practices for listeners to be in that inclusive mindset every day. Because, you know, in today's world, I guess in, in any time and age, it's there's own distractions, right? And then you're absolutely right. It's, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm very aware of the environments and how it impacts other people. But what are some practices or, or books or, or something that, you know, how do we practice what you preach, basically? Let me give a, a couple of shameless plugs. One is my book called Building the Inclusive City. And that's available on Palgrave. That was over 10 years of research on Dubai and how Dubai was looking at changing its policies as well as sort of the ways that it was starting to incorporate an inclusive mindset in the way that the city was being built from a perspective of accessibility, right? Right. You have an upcoming book coming out in January called Inclusion and Belonging in Cities of Tomorrow, Governance and Access by Design. 
But then there's other great books, a book by my friend, Kat Holmes, who for many years led the inclusive design teams at Microsoft, Google, and she's now at Salesforce. Her book is called Mismatch. And she says disability isn't just a medical condition. It's kind of the mismatch between an individual and their environment. And and mismatches are the building blocks of exclusion. So how do we create better matches between people and their environment, between employees and their companies, between companies and their communities, between policymakers and innovators? How do we create systems that fit together? So I think those are some of the things that are exciting. And obviously, there's a lot of publications on our website at worldenabled.org and things we're doing through my foundation, panedafoundation.org. So those are some ways. There's also a very fun series of 24 little micro documentaries that we did with Doha Debates and YouTube and Instagram called My Disability Justice. So they're short 60-second videos from disability activists all over the world. And you can find all that on, on our websites. I encourage people to connect with me on LinkedIn and sort of keep educating yourself. There's a lot of other influencers in this space, so just be open and ally in sort of learning about this work. We'll definitely include links uh, in the description for uh, everything that you just mentioned. And, you know, since we're on the topic of Dubai, you know, COP28 was just there. Do you mind kind of sharing a little bit about that? Because I, I know you just returned from the climate summit there. Yeah, there's a lot of threats that the world is, is facing. And it's this sort of perfect storm of, you know, climate change, inequality, digital transformation, you know, phenomenons around you know, housing shortages. There's just such a range of various challenges. And I think that we need to think a lot more about holistic transformation. What I did was I participated in four or five events as a speaker, sharing my perspective around inclusive innovation and looking at ways that policymakers, philanthropists, and business leaders could not only make greater commitments to inclusive climate action, but rather create ecosystems with partnerships that allow for more meaningful, sustainable, and innovative approaches to tackling these challenges. We're not going to fix these challenges by only pointing out what's wrong with the world, but rather what's investing in what's right with the world. You know, we've invested in in a partnership with the city of Amsterdam. It was a three-year project on leveraging AI to map access barriers. Now, that's important for disaster risk management and for emergency preparedness, as well as for infrastructure upgrading and climate adaptations. But that is going to be a great resource. We're publishing the first artificial intelligence playbook on inclusive and accessible cities. So that could help cities around the world and companies create partnerships around leveraging AI for creating better insights 
around obstacles in cities. And likewise, with the government of Qatar, they hosted the World Cup and they wanted there to be a legacy around access. They wanted to create autism-friendly design guidelines because their stadiums incorporated features for the autism community to sort of enjoy sports uh, and recreational activities. So we wanted to sort of extend what would it look like to build an autism-friendly city or a city that was both, you know, incorporated our diversity into the planning of the city. So those are some of the innovative ways that we're looking at urban design, technology, and training with cities to really create more inclusive environments. That's fascinating because even for the, kind of like you said, the, the everyday person that feel like they are quote-unquote, matched, right, with their environments because of their physical abilities. You just made me realize that, you know, a lot of people still experience. You never know when you might experience that mismatch, right? It may not be as visible as a physical difference. And we see that all the time, obviously, during the pandemic and whatnot. It could be a mental barrier, not a physical barrier. And it's fascinating, you know, that what you're talking about, your work, doesn't just impact differently abled people. It actually, you know, has a massive impact on on everybody, because, like you said earlier, it, you never know when you might become physically disabled and part of the community. Right? We don't discriminate. Everybody's welcome. I think the question becomes: How do we build an experience where disability is not stigmatized? Yeah. I, I mean, I just had a, a message this morning. A dear friend who's a professor of philosophy just had a stroke. And he's known me since high school. Now, how do we create a way so that, regardless of what aging or other sort of challenges you might face, you could still live a life of dignity? Yeah. Another friend of ours in Dubai, Fatima Jassim, a, a wonderful activist and young woman, recently developed a difficulty with speaking. You know, she's such a bright voice for her community that she's struggling to find a way to express herself and in a new identity of being nonverbal, right? And I think that technology could really bridge those experiences so that we don't have to sit on the sidelines if we encounter a change in the way that we interact with the world, but rather can bridge the way that we interact with the world and in effect change the world to interact with us no matter what might unfold in our lives. Like I think the listeners on this podcast can really support my mission by engaging with my work. And I think that we can each become advocates for more inclusive innovation no matter what sphere we work in. I think sharing my research around AI, this playbook on inclusive cities, the autism-friendly design guidelines, as well as some of the work we're doing to build a global advisory council on inclusive innovation becomes ways that the very talented Haas community could connect with real systems change. And whether you're an entrepreneur within a big corporation, an entrepreneur, or whether you're a public sector innovator, you know, we really are each designing the future today. We're each making decisions today that could 
create a world of more opportunity or more barriers. I think for me, I'm focusing on expanding the global impact of my foundation. So philanthropic partnerships, corporate partnerships are really important. And leveraging the position of, you know, research, public policy, and sort of training can really help upskill people and really accelerate communities' capabilities to adapt to this changing world. You brought up AI and your research in AI. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, there is obviously growing fears on the impact of AI on future jobs and things like that. But, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, I'm an eternal optimist. I think more opportunities will be created. But I'd like to hear your perspective on kind of your thoughts on that and how AI will impact society at large. Well, I was I had the great honor of participating in the uh, World Economic Forum's AI Governance Summit. Those are all the major players from Meta to Apple to Microsoft to you know, a range of startups, a range of governments, all looking at that question. What is the AI governance framework? What are the guardrails that will allow us to mitigate the harms and maximize the benefits? I serve on the Global Future Council on the Connected World, where we're looking at that very proactively from a multi-stakeholder perspective. Look, I think that it all comes down to where we invest our time and attention. We do need to mitigate the risks, but we also need to maximize the benefits. What that means is, if we go back to some of my fondest memories at Haas, you know, I really enjoyed the uh, social business plan competitions, and we participated in some of those competitions because, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit about unlocking opportunities, leveraging knowledge, resources. Those are the ways that we create value, but also ground ourselves in the values. So the value of equity, the value of participation, the value of inclusion, the value of meaningful and authentic stewardship, corporate governance. Those are all ideas that I care a lot about. And those are things that shaped my trajectory as an investor and philanthropist. And it underscores sort of, you know, the power of innovative thinking to drive social change. So to answer your question, what do we need to do to ensure AI is a force of good? I think we need to open up our hearts. I think we need to be grounded with who we are as individuals what we value, and really create a more intentional approach to how we direct our attention. Because what you pay, what you appreciate, appreciates, right? If we're in a fear economy, we're feeding fear. If we're an economy that's investing it in more integrated, holistic approaches, we'll be building those. So I encourage people to read Daniel Kamen's book, Think Fast and Slow, and Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, those books sort of help ground us 
and both shaping problem-solving challenges, but also to do it in a mindful way. So then we can be more mindful with everything we do, we'll be better off. Yeah, I totally agree. And speaking of Dale and Kahneman, it's my favorite Michael Lewis book, which is the story between Kahneman and uh, Asbob Sabersky, their friendship, and it's such a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful story. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. There's all these relationships, even here at Haas, right? Every year, 2,000 people go through Haas at any one time. Those are relationships that matter. So I think in closing remarks, I want to emphasize that the transformative power of radical inclusion and the ability to bring inclusive innovation into our workplace, into our schools, into our communities is not only about reimagining the world, but it's about building a world where everyone can contribute and thrive. And I think, you know, the work from my foundation, the work at Haas and all the other innovators and change makers with our community, there is a fabric that binds us. And we're all committed to making this vision of a better future a reality, building the future we need starts today. I want to thank you so much for sharing that message and your story. It was a pleasure having you on today, Dr. Banana. Well, thank you. And I hope to come back maybe sometime next year and see how things are developing. Yeah, we will absolutely love to have you on again. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. And there you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. One Haas Podcast is a production of the Haas School of Business and produced by University FM. Until next time, go Bears.